Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's so exciting to be back here talking to you. And you know what I just realized is that because you're black and because I'm funny, you could be the Dark Knight and I could be the Joker. Damn it. <laughs> what? I, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that's what the Joker did. He went around thinking he was funny and tormenting people. Mm-hmm. And Joker been giving Batman the work for like 50 years. So yes. my unpopular opinion, Batman <laughs> is a trash hero. At the moment of this recording, it's actually Juneteenth. So yes, Juneteenth. That's exciting. Yes. Um, I don't know what plans you got. I'm planning on seeing uh, Ilhar, the uh, Phantom in the Ilharmonic, so that's mm-hmm. going to be fun. I may step outside because, you know, I got these nifty little Pan-African colored shoes, and I just got a crispy fade, so somebody fitting to see me today, you know. I'm, oh, I'm stepping outside. Beyond that, I'm not trying to do nothing. Let's go ahead and jump into the content for today. Uh, but before we go ahead and do that, We are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thoughts, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So today we are in Doctrine and Covenants, section 67 through 70, to give a little background of what we're going through. And, you know, Derek, feel free to fill in these gaps. I guess since we're starting in 67, that's where I will start. Okay. And, you know, I really like this section because basically what's happening is uh, Joseph Smith has called an assembly of the elders to, uh, to basically propose the publishing of the revelations they've received thus far. Uh, and, and there is some hesitance among the brethren. The revelations declared themselves to be the words of God in a, you know, very Protestant culture. It called their neighbors to repentance and even called some of their neighbors, you know, the Missourians in this case, uh, their enemies. The revelations also had a lot of simple language and grammatical inconsistencies that some of the brethren didn't feel very good Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joseph, however, was confident in the revelations and he promised the elders That if they come together, quote, with one heart and one mind in perfect faith, that the veil might as well be rent today as next week or any other time, close quote. So uh, seeking confirmation of the revelations, the brethren tried to do this. They tried to rend the veil like the Book of Mormon's brother of Jared, but they failed. Joseph asked why, and they received section 67 in response, which is, a bit of the read, a bit of a read of the elders. There's quite a bit going on here. But uh, the first and most obvious reason for the failure is a stated in verse three. And I'd like to start there if that's cool with you, Derek. I don't think you have anything before that. Right, right. That All was, right. Yeah, go ahead. So I'll start with verse three. I'll just go ahead and read that real quick. This is section 67, verse three. Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts. And verily, this is the reason that ye did not receive. We, we talked about some of these fears already. And I think it might be a good time to talk about the consequences of fear in general when it comes to dealing with the Lord. There are different kinds of fear and uh, they're not all sinful. I recently, actually in preparation for this lesson, I learned that there are different words in the Greek translation of the Bible for the different kinds of fear that exist. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, a rever- there's a word for the reverential kind of fear that is often spoken of in the Bible, and there is a, a different word for the constitutional fear that's you know necessary for the preservation of our lives. Like, you know, the fear of stepping close to a high ledge or the fear you fear, feel when you hear a rattlesnake or the fear, you know, you get driving cautiously on a snow-covered highway or, you know, the fear you might experience going outdoors unvaccinated in the middle of, of a panoramic. Mm. There's, there's nothing wrong with that fear. Like, those fears are okay. They are God-given. But then there's this carnal fear that is significantly different from these other two 
so much so that it has a uh, different word in the Greek translations of the scriptures. There isn't anything good about this fear. It's a uh, base and uh, almost senseless fear. Uh, this is the translation of fear that was used when, uh, when Adam hid himself from the Lord after having sinned. It's the uh, f- word that is used when the Israelites were told not to fear the people of the land in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 14. And it's the fear expressed by Felix in Acts 24. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about this last year. But uh, I'll just say that the scriptures tell us that he was afraid before he told Paul, quote, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And I kind of want to come back to that because this is one of the uh, this is one of the things I really want to discuss with this fear is the effects it has on, you know, our dealings with the Lord, but also on our ministry and worship experiences, uh, you know, in certain struggles uh, for uh, for a more just world. But anyway, there's a common thread in all these examples uh, of this kind of fear that we now see in Doctrine and Covenants section 67. I had to ask the question, where is that fear coming from? What is the source of that fear? Mm -hmm. What is that fear trying to preserve? Uh, Because if we could understand that, then perhaps we could overcome it and indeed rent the veil as Joseph wanted the saints to do. Perhaps we could prevent ourselves from making the same mistakes as they did and receive the revelations and blessings that they could have received. And again, this has incredible applications that we could uh, you know, bring into today. But anyway, I worked backwards through to find what I believe is the source of this fear. And uh, when it comes to overcoming fear, the Lord is pretty much always involved. Mm-hmm. There are several times where the Lord says something along the lines of, uh, be not afraid, it is I, uh, or be not afraid, I am with thee, something like that. Like the Lord told Abraham, right. fear not, Abraham, for I am thy shield. He told Hagar, fear not, and God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. He told Moses when he had to go up against the Red Sea, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. In Doctrine and Covenants now, the Lord curtly yet profoundly states, one of my favorite scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants, Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. So then, the source of fear seems to be this sort of uh, pride and or faithlessness, and that charts considering what the rest of the Lord or what the re- the rest of what the Lord has to say later in section 67. I think this is either verse 10 or verse 13. Let me find this. This is verse 10. So he says, Inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual mm-hmm. There's a pride and a faithlessness that is present in this kind of fear, which is why it's unrighteous. And, you know, when we talk about overcoming bigotry, whether it be in or outside of the church, we speak a lot of this kind of carnal fear. You know, we ask a lot, rhetorically, of course, what are straight people afraid of? What are men afraid of? What are white people afraid of by imparting equity, by imparting equality, by giving people the bare minimum of what they are entitled to as human beings. And it's a rhetorical question, oftentimes a rhetorical question, because the answer is almost always a fear of losing ground of some kind, a fear Mm, of losing privilege, a fear of losing a position that is entirely dependent on being better than somebody on the margins. That is the kind of fear we are oftentimes addressing when it comes to civil rights struggles. There is a fear present in the people of privilege. We see that in just about just about every time somebody does a slight challenge of a an oppressive status quo. Uh, we saw that when Kaepernick took a knee. We see that today with the introduction or with the fight against CRT in the 1619 Project. People are afraid, and you know, we, I, I do want to come back to this later, but I think I'm okay to speak generally in saying that 
This is the kind of fear that the Lord wanted to purge from the saints. This is the kind of fear that prevented the veil from being rent. This is the kind of fear that so often gets in the way of progress in uh, in civil rights contexts, but also in our own dealings with the Lord. We are afraid of doing what is necessary to make progress. Yeah, I'm curious about something. It has to do with the fear of change, the fear of whatever the these individuals who are resisting justice are afraid of. Do you think that fear is sort of an illusion that what they're afraid of isn't really bad even for them, that we would be better off all of us with a more just society? Or do you think they actually have something to fear? I do think they have something to fear because, you know, whether or not the fear is actually of that change or whatever, they may not necessarily fear a change in their environment, but they fear what that change might mean for them and about who they are. Like, I think about what why Adam was afraid of the Lord. And I think that fear is very similar to why people of privilege are afraid, because encountering a necessary outcome in order for things to move forward That means that you have to encounter a part of yourself that is fundamentally flawed. That is why Adam was afraid. That is why I believe white people are afraid is because they are being forced to encounter a part of themselves that is fundamentally errant. And that is a problem for them. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do that. Our brains value efficiency. They don't like to change. Being forced to encounter the worst parts of ourselves, which is what some of like the more deeper repentance we have to engage in does and what Mm -hmm. uh, encountering a change in civil rights context does. I feel like that makes us encounter parts of ourselves that we don't actually want to change. Because if we have to confront that fact, Mm -hmm. then that means we have to confront the fact that there's something wrong with us. Does that make sense? It does. I think it depends on what you're fearing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, as to whether the fear is justified or not, or whether it's uh, righteous or not. It reminds me of what it says in Matthew 10, where it says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear those who can destroy, uh, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Basically, if if you have fear for God, you won't be afraid of anyone else. Correct, correct. I love what it says in Psalm 23, Lo irara, I will fear no evil or no disaster. Kiata imidi, because you are with me. Yes, um, and that's yes. the same verb for fear that's used in, in Genesis 3. Yes. The verb yare yes. in, uh, um, with Adam saying that he was afraid. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. I love that psalm. I want to move on to verse 5 of section 67. Here's what it says. Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr., and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very interesting, because we should always have humility on behalf of our church leaders and on behalf of our scriptures. Mm -hmm. Revelation is given according to the weakness of the revelator, the limitations of their biases, their languages, their, their grammar and spelling even. We can see this with Joseph very clearly. You can also see this in the New Testament, by the way, because when we translate it into English, we typically make it polished and good English and everything is nice, especially in the King James Version. When you read the King James of anything in the New Testament, it sounds like literature. Uh But reading it in Greek, you realize that each author has different styles, then those styles can kind of get homogenized in English because you'll get the translator's style. And not all the Greek is the same register. Some is a much more polished and literary, and some is much more conversational or rough. But anyway, my point is really to talk about Joseph here. And revelation is given according to the weakness of the revelator. We see that in DNC section one yes. as well. But this is how it is for me and for you and for all of us. All of us are doing the best we can to get impressions from God and and put words on them. It's not a different Mm -hmm. thing. Revelations aren't magic text messages from God. It doesn't work like that Mm -hmm. for us. It doesn't work like that for the prophets and apostles. That's not exactly how it is. Mm -hmm. And Joseph is the one who had to come up with the words. 
And that wasn't a perfect process. It needed some iteration. It needed improvement. There were things that were recorded, and we can see this from Richard Howard's work and Dale Luffman's work, which I'm going to cite later, and we've already talked about several episodes ago. There was this iteration, this adjusting of stuff that people received as revelation in 1830 or 1831, and they wrote it down, and people circulated that as scripture through handwritten copies. And then later when it was printed, they decided, oh, we're just going to change this. Something that was seen to be the word of God got changed. Mm -hmm. And as a result of this process, there are human fingerprints all over scripture. And that's where a reasoned and wise and mature approach to the scriptures comes into play. Okay. Having, having balance, balancing the fact that this is the word of God, but it's given through imperfect humans. Yes. And we can talk about a little bit about this later when we talk about when uh, leaders are moved by the, or us, when we're, anyone is moved by the Holy Ghost. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to go on to verse 10 of section 67, and here's this promise from God that the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am. Mm. This is a promise. I th People almost don't realize that the logic of a promise is that when someone is promising you, they're holding themselves out to be accountable. They are giving right. a condition by which you will know in the future if they're trustworthy. So they are inviting accountability. Yes, yes. And so we see that God gives promises, and this implies that God wants us to hold God accountable to God's promises. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of obedience is the first law of heaven. We've heard this quite a number of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I actually take this quite differently than other people because it says, it doesn't say obedience is the first law of earth. It says obedience is the first law of heaven, which means the heavens are governed by the principle of obedience. And mm -hmm. God is, is subject to this principle of obedience that governs the heavens. And so God needs to be obedient as well. And what does that mean? I think yeah. there's standards of truth and beauty and justice that God is subject to and God is accountable to. Or at least that's the way the narrative portrays it, right? I can't talk about systematic theology and exactly the, uh, the ontology of God. And ontology is a word for our listeners that means the nature of someone's being, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. the study of, of what exactly it is. I'm not saying that. I'm saying our narrative in the scriptures portrays God as someone who is subject to to laws to laws and that's how perhaps in our imagination the way we say the narrative that god was exalted by obedience to these laws and uh, mm -hmm. that he mm -hmm. that god did not create and we can see <laughs> this in a little bit in dnc section 121 about that the only power that the priesthood has is to persuade and if god's power is priesthood power then god is subject to DNC 121. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Let's look at the rainbow of Genesis chapter 9. I've said this before, but the rainbow, if you look carefully, is a symbol. It's not so that we see the rainbow. It's so that God sees the rainbow and God remembers the promise. And you can mm -hmm. see this also in Genesis 18 with Abraham bargaining over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, I don't have the text in front of me, but it, Abraham says very boldly to God, will not the Lord of the, God of the universe do what is right? Will not the judge of the, I can't remember how it's phrased, but it's basically, you're the judge of the universe, will you not do what is right? And mm -hmm. so Abraham is holding God accountable to some larger principles. And what do I, mm. what do I take away from this? Is that Tell any God any government, any church, any institution, any Facebook group. <laughs> well, any, well. Any of these. Come any on. Of, any of these entities that do not let you hold them accountable. If come they on. do not let you hold them accountable, they are abusive. Come on. If they hurt you and then punish you for merely pointing out that they're hurting you, that mm. is the definition of abusive. Woo. It is controlling, well, well. it is unhealthy, it is abusive, and it needs to be named as abusive. If, if someone says, you can't complain about this, if someone says, you can't criticize, if someone says, mm -hmm. you don't have the free speech to hold me accountable, if you can't criticize mm -hmm. those who have power over you, that's, mm -hmm. that's not how God works. 
according to DNC 121. I think we should, according to DNC 121, God would be pleased if we criticize God. Mm. Right? To say, God, I trust you to be accountable to your promises. I trust you to exercise the priesthood in accordance with the principles that heaven and earth are founded on. I just am so passionate about this. Like people think it's weird to say that you should criticize God, but I think God can take it. <laughs> Do you remember Reverend Dr. Fatima's course on uh, lamentation and, grie- and uh, grieving from like a year ago where she talked about this? I don't recall this exactly. Okay. I don't want to interrupt like too long with it, but you know, when she was working as like a, like a chaplain mm-hmm. in hospitals and stuff, and uh, she was like dealing with people who had to like deal with grief, she would often mm-hmm. listen to people who would criticize God for, you know, allowing certain things to happen in their lives, allowing them to lose people or allowing certain bad things to happen. But she would like mm-hmm. want to comfort them and talk about the justice of God or talk about how God still loves them. But God would say to her in those moments, actually, no. Don't defend me here. Oh, yeah. I remember you that. remember this That's now? Re- that, that was so powerful. Yo, that, that made me feel a way, bro. Like, mm-hmm. I never considered that sometimes when we get angry at God for the things that happen in our lives, that he's actually okay with our anger, that he gets it, that he empathizes mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we ready to go on to section 68? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Okay, so I have to figure out how much time I want to spend on this. <laughs> So I'm going to draw upon the work of two scholars. One is Richard Howard and his book, Restoration Scriptures, A Study of Their Textual Development. And then the other is Dale Luffman and his book, Commentary on the Community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants. And both of these scholars are from the Community of Christ tradition. Mm. And we talked about Howard a little bit uh, a while back when we had this discussion on retroactive continuity with the faithful feminists. If you didn't hear this episode, go back and listen to this one. It's the one from May 17th, 2021 on DNC sections 51 through 57. And I'm not going to go through this whole chart, but we see instances where, according to Luffman, that we've got changes in the text. So we've got this revelation originally uh, written down in 1831. Then it was published in the periodical The Evening and the Morning Star in 1832. And then it was published again in, in the 1835 Kirtland Doctrine and Covenants, which is the first printing of the Doctrine and, Co- uh, Doctrine and Covenants. What's interesting is you've got changes. Uh... And when you compare these side by side, you realize that there's theological, organizational, and administrative progression. Like, Joseph's theology is emerging. The community's theology and what they're ready for is emerging. And because of this, you've got uh, changes. And you've also got situational changes, where originally the Revelation said, uh, it talked about, Zion, right? This shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion. But then in the revised version, it adds the inhabitants of Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized. Now, the reason for this change is originally you had everything focused on Zion, but then by 1835, you had branches elsewhere and you were stretching out. And that means, well, our understanding needs to change in light of our observations. As you spoke, I was thinking just about how the prophets today had that same power that, you know, Joseph mm-hmm. Smith had. And uh, I would like to see that be exercised more. I would like to see there be more, you know, inbreaking of new knowledge and new revelations according to our unique uh, challenges and issues that we deal with today because. You know, this has mm-hmm. happened all through. This has happened throughout the scriptures. Like, yeah, there's been times where the same promises and the same uh, instructions were given. You know, we received the Ten Commandments more mm-hmm. than once. We hear the first and second great commandments more than once. But there are other things that are. F- but a lot of uh, what is present in the scriptures is also deeply contextual, um, and you know, there's a reason um, that we 
have those certain stories because there is something about those contexts that we can learn from. But also one of the big lessons is that different times, different people, different seasons, different geographies, they have different stories. And I think uh, it would be great if we leaned into yeah. that a little bit more as we sought a revelation for our geography, for our context, for our history and for, you know, our issues. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking about as you spoke. So that, gets into an interesting thing. I think we do have a little bit of this tweaking that happens in the church today. There are times where they say one thing over the pulpit in general conference, but then by the time it appears in print, they fix the thing, right? And there's another way of of fixing and adjusting, and it has to do with this concept called paratext. If you ever want to sound like you're this book nerd, use the word paratext. And paratext is the stuff that is surrounding or alongside the text. So you've got the main text, but then you've got the section headings, you've got the footnotes, you've got the cross-references, you've got all these other things. So there are ways of modifying the meaning of a text by changing the paratext. And let me give an example of this. I think it was Elder Anderson gave a talk about uh, bitter fruits, and he, he basically said something that people interpreted to mean any children out of wedlock are bitter fruits. Mm. You remember this? No, I don't. Oh, well, it was. I think it was. It was back this past year. And oh, was this past year? Yeah, it was this past year. Jeez. So this was in, and this was in general conference. It was in general conference. How do I not? Elder remember Anderson this? Like, said uh, about the fruits of sin and and that children oh, out of wedlock births. Out of no, wedlock births are uh, bitter fruits of sin or something. Yeah, I do remember this. And people were like, yeah, "Yeah, it causes this uproar on online." And you know what happened? Well, when it got printed, uh, or when it got posted online, they didn't change the text, but they changed the paratext. They put a footnote explicitly in there to disclaim that interpretation. They're like, nope, that's that's don't interpret this to mean that the children themselves are the bitter fruits, right? Mm-hmm. So there's ways of adjusting the paratext in order to frame and change the meaning of the text when you don't feel that you can change the text. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of these, um, you see this in the Book of Mormon. Ooh, I don't know if you really, we, I don't know if we've talked about this, but Probably in the old not. in the old timey Book of Mormon, all those apparently racist verses. If you look at the cross references, they all cross referenced each other and like, oh, let's mm-hmm. support this. Here's more support for black skin and curses and stuff. Now, yeah. in the 2013 edition of the Book of Mormon, they've changed the paratext. They've changed the cross references. Now, all those apparently racist verses don't cross reference to each other. They cross reference to Second uh, Nephi 26.33 that says black and white are all alike unto God. So you've changed, the t- you've changed the impression that the text gives you just by changing. And also the section headings have been changed as well. I can't remember yeah, the exact yeah. wording, but the sen- there's more sensitivity around black skin and curses in the section headings. So there's ways mm-hmm. of, of tweaking without even changing the text. Maybe I think they just feel that they can't change the text right now, but we'll see what happens mm-hmm. with the proclamation and how that gets uh, gets done. Yes, we shall see. Yeah, I don't think I have any more details on this, uh, this chart. Maybe what we should do is post some of these charts so people can see the the actual changes from 1832 to 1835. And you can see that literally... Literally, you know, people overuse the word literally, but here you literally see that it's line upon line. There was a line in 1832, and they put another line on top of it in 1835. And that that's literally line upon line. Um, yeah. yeah, I just find it so fascinating that studying the textual history of the tradition gives you a a reasonable and responsible approach to it. You realize that there's no way that this text can be a text message from God or that it can mm-hmm. be an all-time, a timeless thingy that will apply for all times and all places. Mm. 
you realize that looking at the changes, looking at the actual manuscripts and seeing the human fingerprints, seeing uh, the contingencies that went into the text. And this is true for the Book of Mormon. If you compare the manuscripts with the earliest published editions from uh, 1830, 1837, all of those, if you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, if you look at the Book of Abraham, if you look at the uh, Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, you realize that there are a lot of human fingerprints. There's just a lot mm -hmm. of ways that they had to figure it out. And they, I don't want to say that they made it up as they go along because that would give the wrong impression, but there is a sense in which they had to play around and figure it out and try new right. things. And there was trial you can and never have what the Protestants call a verbal plenary inspiration of the text. And this is the idea that God not only gave the ideas, but God the, gave the exact words and plenary, mm -hmm. plenary means full. It means that the entirety of the scriptures is given completely word by word verbatim from God. And mm -hmm. that's not, that's not what Latter-day Latter Saints have ever believed about any of our right. scriptures. So I think I should move on from section. Well, I, no, I just even start. I didn't even get to talking about some of the details <laughs> of of sixty eight. Yeah, that was just verse one too that we were discussing. Yeah, so. we were just. Uh, <laughs> but let me just go. Uh, in sixty eight verse one, it says. Um, it's the text is calling Orson Hyde to proclaim the everlasting gospel by the spirit of the living God and then go around to various peoples and reason with and expound all scriptures unto them. And I think this is a great text for the authority of these scriptures because mm -hmm. theoretically Orson Hyde had the spirit, had this ability to be a revelator himself in some in some way, but that's not enough. He had to reason with and expound the scriptures as well to people. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true today. Like the scriptures still have weight. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people say, oh, we just listen to the prophet and, the, and a living prophet trumps a dead prophet and all this other stuff. But no, we still are accountable to the scriptures and that is the primary foundation for what we're doing. And I want to talk about the power of the scriptures real quick. I'm going to quote again from the Talmud. This is the uh, the Jerusalem Talmud Shekalim 16, and here's what it says. Rabbi Pinchas, in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, also called Reish Lakish, said, the Torah that the Holy One gave to Moses was given to him as white fire engraved with black fire. It is fire mixed with fire, carved from fire, given from fire, as it is written, and here it quotes the Torah, at God's right hand was a fiery law unto them. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Hmm. And here it's saying the Torah itself is fire mixed with fire, carved from beneath God's throne of glory, which is fire, and given from the one who is fire. That's what it means, given from fire, carved from fire, mixed with fire. And what this means is, that the scriptures are black fire on white fire. And this is about the appearance of the Torah scroll. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but you've got um, a white parchment with black ink on it. That is black fire on white fire, which tells us that the blank spaces are fire too. Mm. You have to read the blank spaces. Without spaces, there wouldn't be any uh, letters, right? If it's all black, then it's the negative space that actually makes the, the words pop through. Interesting. Yeah, and I just want to, um, yeah, it is, I think it's really cool how uh, how how powerful we, we treat the, the, the scriptures, and the scriptures are like fire. If you have fire and you control it and use it responsibly, the fire will cook your food, it will give you light, and it will warm your room but if you do not use fire it will burn down your village if you do not use fire responsibly it will burn down your village right so mm -hmm. we have to use the scriptures judiciously maturely and responsibly hmm. and i think that's what what um what uh what people miss mm. speaking of 
the the scriptures responsibly. Do you have any thoughts about verse four where it says, uh, "Whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture"? Oh, geez, man. You know I do. I uh, I quote the scripture a lot when, and you know, I think I've said it on this show before, but you know, I'll just say it now. Um, I don't have the luxury of believing that everything the brethren say, even if it is in the official capacity of the church, represent the mind and will of God. Right. So when people ask me how I determine when the brethren are speaking the mind and will of God, this is the first scripture I defer to. This uh, section 68, verse 4, whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, mm-hmm. shall mm-hmm. be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the voice, the word, the power of God unto salvation. So the question then becomes, and this is an okay question to have, mm-hmm. how do we know when the brethren are moved upon by the Holy Ghost? And the answer is basically the same as what we find in Moroni's promise. We have to ourselves be in tune with the Holy Ghost so that when we ask God about the words we hear, we might know of their truth. The brethren also validate this line of thinking when Brigham Young said, if we should get out of the way and lead this people to destruction, quote, what a pity it would be. How can you know whether we lead you correctly or not? And then he answers the Mm -hmm. question, can you know by any other power than that of the Holy Ghost? I have uniformly exhorted the people to obtain this living witness, each for themselves. Then no man on earth can lead them astray. Close quote. So I'm a big believer in the power of the Holy Ghost, the role of the Holy Ghost in determining what scripture is and when our leaders are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. I would even extend this to some of our text, because even Mm -hmm, though I do mm -hmm. believe the text to be inspired, I do believe in Moroni's promise as well. There are things that we might be tempted to read in a way that are not the actual intent of the author or are not what the Lord wants us to get out at the time. So I believe that the Holy Ghost being in tune and being willing to receive uh, answers that could go any which way is a necessary part of uh, knowing when the Lord is speaking, knowing when the Lord is moving, knowing when people are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. But there's still another question here that could still be asked, and I want to make space for that too. Um which is whether or not this method is subjective. Could we not conceivably get two different answers to the same question, even ones that seem to oppose mm-hmm. each other? Now, I would say, yes, that such a thing is possible, but I'd also say that that's not quite the right question because the answers that someone gets are none of your business, especially yeah. if they aren't causing you harm. Uh, several LGBTQ folks, and you know, I know you've seen this in the community, I've seen it as well, several have received witnesses that their identities and the expression of those identities mm-hmm. are valid, while others claim that the path is celibacy or mixed orientation marriage is the way to go. It's okay to have different answers to the same question because these can differ depending on people's situation and who they are. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's, for example, they decided that pacifism was the way to deal with their issues, but their children, not so much. But both were valid. Both approaches were valid, even though they were totally different, opposite ends of the spectrum. I take this to things like the word of wisdom and the law Mm -hmm. of chastity as well. I personally don't drink coffee or alcohol, but I wouldn't condemn members who do. I'm not someone who can consume stuff like that responsibly, so I avoid it. Mm -hmm. I can believe, however, that people have made peace with themselves and God about their consumption of those things, and that's equally valid as my decision to not do so. Right. Uh, where I start asking questions is when people are getting revelation on things that aren't actually their stewardship or that cause right. harm to others. We learn in Moroni 7 that whatever persuades to do evil, to believe not in Christ, to deny him, to serve not God, then you may know with the perfect knowledge that it is of the devil, for he persuadeth no man to do good, not one. So I do believe there is a limit to... Um, that particular interpretation, but uh, I, I think the line, or it, or at least the primary line, is uh, you know, 
what concerns mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. and just you, and also what causes harm to others. So that is probably the one word of caution I would put in uh, this particular interpretation of that scripture. Yeah, that reminds me so much of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, by their fruits you will know them. Yeah, Like that's how yeah. you know, right? See what the impact is. See what the, uh, wh- how it would play out. That gets back into like what happens when someone gets revel- personal revelation that conflicts with what people assume is the revelation given to church leaders. Right. And one of the right. things to think about is, and you 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 touched on this already, is who bears the cost for that? Who mm-hmm. bears the cost if they get it wrong? Like I'm the right. type of person that if I get something wrong, I'm willing to to take the penalty for it. Like if I'm wrong about this interpretation, I'm risking everything on the fact that I'm right. And let's look at mm-hmm. it from this standpoint. There was this um, anti-gay person who wanted to have a conversation with me about stuff and church doctrine and interpretation. And I was very clear with him, yeah, I can have this conversation, but it's a different conversation for you than it is for me. Because if for some reason I convince you that I'm right, if I convince you that I'm right, your life doesn't change a bit. You can keep your wife, you can keep your kids, you can keep everything the same, you can keep your pretty Instagram pictures, you can... Your life doesn't actually change any. You will lose nothing if I convince you that I'm right. But what if he convinces me that he's right? Well, my life is going to completely change. If he's Uh actually right that gay equals icky and bad and sinful, that changes the whole course of my life, what my family looks like, what my partner can and can't be. Like my So we've got an asymmetry here of power and of, of impact. And so it's not the same conversation. He goes into that conversation with nothing to lose, and mm-hmm. I don't. And that's a similar thing with what happens with a, when a church leader has revelation and then a, another person uh, has personal revelation that may conflict. Well, on Judgment Day, the person with the personal revelation is going to be able to explain it, even if they were wrong. Right? Even if they wrongly got personal revelation, they can go to the Lord and say, look, I did the best I could. This is what I have. You know what I what I was working with. And they're going to def- be able to defend themselves. Well, let me just tell you, tell everyone a principle from discourse analysis. There's one big principle that says choice implies meaning. That if an author has a choice of which word to use, a choice of which form to use, a choice of which tense to use, a choice to include or, or not, then that implies intentional meaning. There's some there's some structures about the language that you don't actually have a choice, right? That's just the way it has to be, and everyone would uh, has to conform. But there's other cases where you have a choice. Now here you have a clear choice. It could have said, "And whatsoever they shall speak shall be scripture," but the fact that they had a choice to put in uh, this big temporal clause when moved upon by the Holy Ghost that is not required by grammar it is not mm-hmm. required by the context it is not required by anything mm-hmm. so the choice to add it implies that it's meaningful yes sir and it implies that without that condition the, the statement wouldn't be true so it implies mm-hmm. that there's times that they speak that they aren't moved by the Holy Ghost and it's not scripture Mm-hmm. And you know, some uh, sometimes uh, the prophets themselves have trust issues. Yeah, Abraham and Sarah didn't trust their own bodies in Genesis 16, and this is when, um, after the promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would bear a child, they decided to go around it the other way around and and have a child between Abraham and Hagar. By the way, Sarah is recognized as a woman prophet in Judaism. I don't know if people realize this, but the Talmud actually specifies uh, specific people who are prophets and, and by name, and there are seven women prophets, and those are Sarah, Miriam, who's, who had some amazing things we can learn from, Deborah, also amazing, Hannah, also amazing, Abigail, and Huldah, which people might not know much about, and then Esther, I think, mm also amazing things that we can learn from these women prophets. 
So let me just go back to what I was saying is that sometimes these Ab these prophets have trust issues. You've got Abraham and Sarah mm -hmm. didn't trust their own bodies. Moses mm -hmm. didn't trust the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, he struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock, but he he like, oh, that's not going to work. So he struck the rock, and that's what excluded him from the promised land. And then Jonah <laughs> didn't trust. Oh, he, were you going to say something? No, just, yeah, I was just chuckling at how that simple act was something that kept Moses out of the promised land. Yeah, and Moses was a prophet, right? Yeah. When people say follow the prophet, well, let's look at everything the prophets ever did. And that gives us a healthy and responsible approach to prophetic authority. Mm -hmm. um, and also Jonah didn't trust the sea. And you see this after Jonah 2. And you know why Jonah didn't trust the sea? It's Why? because it's because there was something fishy about it. I knew this was coming. I I was ready for that one. I was like, it's coming. There's a joke coming. Yes. I'm not in as much pain. <laughs> yeah. So Jonah didn't trust the sea because there was something fishy about it. <laughs> for good measure, yes. But anyway, Jonah made a big mistake. Like he was a pro true prophet and then didn't do what the Lord wanted and didn't, uh, well, anyway, so, and this gets back to what we were saying about from Howard and Luffman. We realized that there was a lot of con contingency in how these texts ended up and it could have been very different with a different revelator. It could have been different in a different time and place. And I really think that once we go back and take a fresh look at the proclamation, we realize, well, that's the line that we were on in 1995, line upon line. When you expand, oh, I love this idea going back to expanding from Zion to Zion or the st all the stakes of Zion. You've got this mm -hmm. expanding circle of inclusion. The text got broader. It got more inclusive. It handled more exceptions and more cases. Like, I think that is the trajectory of the scriptures. Are we ready to go on to... I actually have one more thing to talk about in 68. Oh, okay. Yes, because uh, in addition to the Lord wanting to talk to the elders about stuff in like these first, uh, what, 10 or 12 verses, he also took time to talk about the bad parenting of the saints uh, by the time we get to the end of this verse. And I think oh, this yeah, is... Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I just want to talk about this briefly. I'm just going to read these uh, verses, 25 and 28, real quick. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. Mm. 28. And they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. Uh, first thing I want to do is I want to lift up what Jasmine Bradshaw is doing over at the uh, First Name Basis podcast. Mm -hmm. Her content is literally designed to make anti-racist education accessible and enable parents to teach their children. Uh, because this work of abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice is so urgent, it is paramount that we teach our kids how to do it, and that's a big part mm -hmm. of Jasmine's ministry. Jasmine already knows this, and uh, she may very well have put this a different way on her show already, but I'll say it here too. We are going to be held accountable for not teaching our children to recognize the Imago Dei in our siblings of color, in our LGBTQ mm. siblings, and in the rest of our siblings on the margins. When we think of teaching our children to understand the doctrine of repentance, are we teaching them the part about our communal responsibility to do better than the previous generations by our siblings on the margins? Yeah. When we teach them faith in Christ, are we teaching them to have faith in the same Christ who identified so much with the margins that he declared our treatment of them would reflect our treatment of him like this is why i find the uh the uh the opposition to crt in school so particularly egregious because racist people finding things to be fake outraged about this is nothing particularly new and it fits a pattern of resistance to having to acknowledge ways in which they fail to live up to the christian charge of their racism 
the Christian charge of being Christian if they are Christian, uh, ways in which they participated or ignored a status quo that oppresses people of color, right. ways in which their American ways of life have actively caused harm. Like, that's nothing new. And the pushback against CRT and the 1619 Project fit very neatly into a pattern of, you know, fake outrage about stuff as a means of distraction from, you know, the fingers pointing at them uh, about their racism or about their bigotry and how it's, you know, affecting our society. So this was predictable and it was as predictable as it was, you know, Mm. fallacious. Uh, But what's so egregious about it? is that we are fundamentally asking schools, when we oppose CRT, when we oppose the 1619 Project, we are fundamentally asking schools to misinform our children about our history. And knowing this history is crucial to acknowledging and eventually solving some serious societal problems. We've talked about this, uh, about the importance of knowing history on the show. And we have uh, witnesses in the scriptures that declare as much. Uh, In the book of Chronicles, we read that the children of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to Mm do. Uh, In the book of Alma, we read that the records, quote, enlarged the memory of their people, yea, convinced many of the error of their ways, close quote. Every section, every section of the Doctrine and Covenants has included with it a historical introduction to contextualize the preceding revelation so we understand it better, so we know how to read it. The implication of both of these verses and the implication of the organization of the Doctrine and Covenants that we're studying this year is that understanding our history helps us understand and act appropriately in Mm -hmm. our present. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it stands to reason that if we want to understand the racial tension that exists today, if we want to understand the disparities along racial lines that persist and properly address it, then we have to understand the history of that tension and the history of those disparities and where they began. Uh, We have to do that. Like, uh, just consider, for example, the killing of uh, George Floyd. He's not the first nor is he the most recent high-profile killing in that 12-mile radius of Minneapolis. And that information alone helps us contextualize the response to his death. But there's more to consider at a local level, like the neighborhood that George was in, the racial makeup of that neighborhood, Mm. and then the racial makeup of the police force assigned to it, um, whether or not that area was segregated, etc. And there's things to consider on a macro level, like the origins of police being tied to slave patrols. In other words, being tied to an institution specifically designed to control black people so history is context and there's one more beautiful truth that was found in that alma scripture that i didn't really dwell on uh, but it's the transformative nature of learning our history look at what the end of that verse says that they might know the error of their ways it is transformative to know our history and to uh you know, be able to have that present. That is why we got to learn about it. We learn it not just to learn more about the past, but we learn it to know more about ourselves and what we ought to do. History tells us who and where we come from, uh, how, how people and events before us have, uh, have shaped who we are now and what kind of actions we need to take in order to pursue a more racially just future without a sense of history and without the proper Mm -hmm. frameworks to interrogate and analyze it. We lose our sense of self and we risk seeking it in more volatile places that validate the more errant parts of our character. Uh, This is what most of the people fighting against CRT are doing. I haven't heard a single valid criticism from any racist white person of CRT. Every single one of them has demonstrated an ignorance of what racism is, a misunderstanding of what CRT Mm -hmm, and the 1619 mm -hmm, Project mm -hmm. are looking to accomplish, and they're occasionally conflating it with other theories. They've demonstrated laziness in their inability and lack of research. They've demonstrated entitlement in inviting other people to converse with them about this stuff without having done their research and also getting people to explain to them why this is valid. We've seen this even in our own community. So... You know, we got to do this is all a long way of just making the point that we got to do better by our children. You know, when we talk to them about repentance, we ta- we got to talk about repenting for our collective sin of racism. Right. When we talk about faith in Christ and teaching them faith in Christ, we got to teach them faith in that same Christ who, as President Nelson has highlighted, spent the majority of his ministry among the margins and again identified so much with marginalized people that he declared profoundly and prophetically that inasmuch as 
like whatever, however we treat people on the margins is what we are doing to Christ himself. So we got to teach our children that part of uh, the gospel. We got to teach them that part of Christ and knowing who they got to have faith in. Yeah. I mean, that ties in with what I said earlier about abusive institutions. Like, yeah, everyone's Mm going to, every Every person in every institution is going to get some stuff wrong. But what happens when they do? Are you allowed to criticize them? Are you allowed to point out the problem? If you're not even allowed to point out the problem, that's abusive. And Mm -hmm. I think by trying Mm -hmm. to prohibit CRT and the 1619 Project, they're, they're artificially trying to prevent people from pointing out the problem. And that's exactly why we need to do our history, as you said, and I want to tie that in with what we see in uh, chapter uh, section 69, verse 3, yeah. and this is all about yeah. the making of a history, and it says uh, also that he shall continue in writing and making a history of all the important things which he shall observe and know concerning my church. And this is, uh, is this John Whitmer, speaking to John Whitmer? I think, yeah, so John Whitmer is going to make this history. And the point of this is that it's important to have a cultural and institutional memory in the Lord's church, not just in society, but also in the church. There's this temptation in the church. We do this all the time, and other churches don't really do this. Other churches really admit their problems and and apologize for them. But in, in our church, there's this temptation to make the changes that we're supposed to make and then retroactively pretend that we were right all along. I've used this <laughs> analogy many times before. It's kind of like if I'm walking down the sidewalk and then I trip, but then I use the momentum of that trip to turn it into just a little cute jog. Like, oops, I'm just now jogging a little bit to pretend like I never never tripped, right? We don't mm-hmm. need to pretend we never tripped. That's one thing you can right. learn from the queer community. Just be yourself, like be honest, be mm-hmm. out, be right. out of the closet. People who love you are going to love you anyway. Mm-hmm. So don't mm-hmm. pretend that you didn't trip. Right. We in the church need to have an honest and open record of the past so we can yes, sir. honor those who suffered and not yes, pretend. Sir. See, if we pretend we got it all right all along, we're basically denying and erasing the suffering that people went through, and that's not a way of, of honoring them. Right. And also we can learn from the past to make sure that we don't do it again. We can learn from what we got right and what we got wrong. That's the whole point of history. And I want to expand this into, watch this, watch this. This is going to be great. Reparations are an essential part of telling history. Oh, come on now. Because on. without reparations, we get this tripping over the thing and pretending it didn't exist. Without reparations, mm-hmm. we are misrepresenting the past the pain of the past and the ongoing consequences of the past. Without reparations, we are pretending that it didn't happen. We are pretending that the past doesn't have these ongoing consequences in the present. If we truly want to present the past accurately, we need to engage in restitution and reparations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? We can't pretend that the mistakes of the past didn't happen in the church. That's not accurate history. Correct. Especially with the 1978 revelation that restored the priesthood to men of African descent. Now people are like, oh, well, we got it right now. It doesn't matter what we did before. Yeah, it does matter what we did before. (laughs) Yeah. It's still affecting us today. It still has a continuing effect on what our leadership looks like, what our people know, what our people believe. Yes, sir. Without reparations. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw this in the uh, news, but uh, the church uh, made headlines for uh, their donations to the NAACP, their humanitarian efforts, as well as the United Negro College Fund. And uh, since that announcement, I've had a lot of people asking me how I feel about that. And Yeah, you know, how do you what feel? Step- you know, I have a desire to be at least cautiously optimistic about this because, you know, people who I respect like Tom Reed, Kathy Stokes, and even uh, Wilbur Cologne, the uh, special counsel to the NAACP, who has been critical of the lack of action on the church's part in the past, they've all had positive things to say about this move. And, uh, 
they've even gone as far as to say Wilbur Colomb anyway has said mm-hmm. this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, uh, you know, this I can acknowledge that this is a positive thing because donations that go to reparative initiatives are a good and necessary mm-hmm. part of right. racial justice and reconciliation work. So I do want to give credit where it's due. Uh, the caution part of the optimism comes because we've seen stuff like this before with other organizations, including faith-based ones. Like if this is, I'm I'm scared that this might be all that happens for another like year or so. Like how long have we been with the NAACP? Like three years? Yeah. Three years we've been with the NAACP and we have demonstrated as a church an ability to be specific and quick on urgent matters, things like uh, marijuana or things like uh, gay marriage, stuff like that. We have demonstrated an ability to move quickly on things that we deem urgent. But three years we've been with the NAACP, so I can't be all that excited about this just yet because I just haven't seen uh, that same energy, specificity, and urgency with issues of race when it comes to the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's the primary reason to for uh, my caution. So... I, I hope that'll change in the future. Like, I hope yeah. that uh, what Wilbur Colomb says is actually true, that this is just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, just given our history as a church when it comes to issues of race, you know, I'm not holding my breath that anything is going to be coming anytime soon, if at all. This gets back to the piece about accountability, right? There's a difference between, oh, I'm going to give black people millions of dollars versus I'm going to be accountable to the leadership of black people. Yes. Those are yes. two different things. Because you can give all the yes. money in the world and still keep your decision-making power. You're like, right. I'm the one that's going to decide how much money to give and where it's going to go. And I get to maybe put restrictions on how it can be used. I can do all this. And then in the end, white people are socialized to want to keep the power and then do good things for black people, but still get to keep the power. That's not justice. Mm -hmm. The Christ-like model is divestment of power and privilege to share power, to refuse this idea of lack of accountability. Like I think the Christ-like model is to be accountable to people who are different from you to divest yourself of power and privilege. And we see this playing out on Facebook where we've got groups that want to do the right thing for queer people or black people, but they don't want to give up that power. They want to have the last word of like, we want to just, you tell us how to, what we need to know so that we can moderate correctly. I'm like, why do you want to be the one that, why don't you let me be the moderator, right? You're Mm going to have no homophobia in any group where I'm the moderator Mm -hmm. because I'm going to have a very active delete button. Right. 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 They don't want to give up power. They want to have their pretty world. They want to have Mm -hmm. a world where non-affirming people and queer people can both be in the conversation and hold hands and have this wonderful, productive conversation. That's not going to happen. No, we want to do the right thing for you. We're going to do this and we're going to decide in your favor. I'm like, why are you doing the deciding? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's all about accountability, it's about power, and I think I would love to see the church do more to offload power and decision-making to people of color, uh, both inside and outside of the church. Mm. And that's an act of faith. It is an act of trust to hand over these keys to someone else. Yes, sir. And this goes back to the fear that we talked about at the very beginning. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a fear handing the keys to your Ferrari to your 16 year old kid. Mm-hmm. But it, but yeah, you have to let your baby go and yeah. you have to trust the process and realize, yeah, people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. Like, uh, Ayanna Presley said, and handing over mm-hmm. this power is exactly what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this many times in scripture, especially the Acts chapter 6 narrative where they handed over oh, decision-making yeah. power to the uh, Greek-speaking community within the church mm-hmm. because they were being neglected in the yeah. distribution of, of uh, property. Speaking of distribution yeah. of property, I just wanted to touch on this last thing in section 70. It says, nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal. So it says, in your temporal things, you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly, 
Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the spirit shall be withheld. So not only are we we supposed to treat people fairly and equitably in the distribution of temporal things, including access and privilege. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about accessibility for (laughs) our friends with disabilities in temporal things. We shall be equal. There needs to be equal access. There needs to be accommodation. We need to have things as accessible for disabled folks as they are for non-disabled folks. In temporal things, that includes like wheelchair ramps and making Mm -hmm. sure that things are accessible. There is an office of disability in the church that's run by non-disabled people who just have a good heart. Yeah. And they get to keep the decision-making power, and that is... Uh, so frustrating given the power imbalance, given these structural things. Anyway, but the consequence for not obeying this commandment will be that the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit will be withheld from us. And this is not equality Mm. of opportunity, it's equality of actuality. It doesn't say give Mm. everyone the opportunity, it says you shall be equal. Yeah. And I want to tie this back to section 49, verse 20. It says, but it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. And this encapsulates everything we've talked about from race to LGBTs to disability to uh, women and other genders. There's just a lot of stuff here that we shouldn't have one person possessing something above another. Yeah. I'll just point out as well that uh, since we started talking about the law of consecration, there has been something in every single lesson that has addressed it in some form or another, uh, this one included. So again, just uh, making sure people understand this theme of repetition. Uh, As often as it comes up, uh, just be reminded that uh, the law of consecration, especially these aspects of equality, these are being repeated throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, which... You know, you, sh- you ought to know is communicating mm-hmm. something yes. about the importance of this law and how we ought to be living as a uh, faith community. Right. I just love studying the Doctrine and Covenants because I didn't grow up with it. Right. Like, this right. is the Word of God. I see this more clearly every day as I work through the Doctrine and Covenants. You've got black fire on white fire here, too. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And so I'm so glad that we and our listeners get to journey through this part of the Word of God together. All right. I just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also at BTBLDS on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And you can also search for us on Facebook. We don't have a TikTok. Should we get a TikTok? Uh, are you going to use it if we get a TikTok? I don't, I don't know, know. But that's where, yeah, the, exactly. that's where the, the new fire is now, apparently. We should probably figure out how to use it. But like, Derek, these are... I think it it would be a useful avenue. Maybe we could put some video content there and some commentary. But you know, these videos are got to be really short. And you know, can you uh, can you do some <laughs> short videos, Derek? Well, um, the age of miracles has not ended. <laughs> we shall see. We might have to we might have to mess around and see what's up on that TikTok. Um, yeah, let's so, check out know. other people. Oh, hey, listeners, if you have any TikToks that we should know about, send us a message. Yeah, I hear that Mormon TikTok is a thing now, so uh, I would like—I wouldn't mind getting up on that and you know seeing what the kids are doing. I said that completely unironically, and I hate myself for it. Yeah, we're getting old now. I know, bro. <laughs> uh, also, be reminded that uh, July second, Derek and I will be hosting a uh, "I Am Green" Fl- or sorry, his name is Green Flake watch party with uh, Maui Junior Bonner. Uh, if you want to tune into that, we'll be posting information about that as the date approaches. Just put it on your calendar now that we are going to be hosting that watch party. Uh, so uh, 
you know, get excited for that. Awesome. Is there I'm anything so else? Nope, that's it for me. All right, awesome. Thank you guys for listening then. Till we meet again next week. Till we meet again next week.